You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our scripture today is from John 12, verses 27 through 33. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it, it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We all long for a purpose. It's an inescapable reality for us as humans. And we have a need to be working towards something great, something long-lasting. We have a desire to leave a legacy. We want our lives to have meant something. And this is why some give their lives to death-defying feats, like evil can evil. And this is why many give their lives over to pursue fame in Hollywood. This is why some give themselves to their careers, spending 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And this is why some get married and have children. This is really a driving force in our lives. And it's so powerful that often when we are stuck in the mundane, we get uncomfortable with it. We don't like it. We feel like we're stuck. Our life is going nowhere. We don't matter. We live in the past obsessing over our sins, over our failures, longing for a chance to do it over again. And we begin to feel the crushing weight of the emptiness of our lives. Purpose is inescapably important for the human experience. It matters deeply. And when we lack true purpose, what happens is that we as humans compromise. We will go wayward. It's inevitable. Purpose matters for the human experience, and it should be no surprise then that our Lord Jesus had a purpose. So the Son of God didn't just become a man on a whim. There was a real purpose. There was a real goal for his incarnation. And we continue this morning in John's gospel, as was just read to us. If you have not turned there already in your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to John 12, starting in verse 27. See, last week we studied the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, where he was hailed as king. And some received him gladly, anticipating the the future glory of Israel being restored. Some were curious, wanting to know more. Some were quite unhappy with Jesus coming in and the people receiving him in this way. And when the crowds approach him, Jesus tells them that is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then proceeds to tell them that he is going to die. But more than this, he says that if any of you who are coming want to follow me, you need to be prepared to die. 
And in all this, Jesus was fixated upon the glory of God. And so we're a part of that same conversation this morning. It's the same themes that are at play. Jesus is not finished talking about death and glory. And that really is a good summary for the life of Jesus, death and glory. So you see, Jesus' purpose here in this earthly life was to glorify the Father. And, and he was so confident about this purpose that he willingly died an unjust criminal's death. He suffered beatings to the point of being bloody and unrecognizable. He experienced mockings. He, he bore the full measure of the wrath of God against sin. Why? Because his life's ambition, his purpose for being here was to glorify the Father. And he would do nothing less than what achieves that. That's purpose. And so in our passage this morning, we're going to see the purpose of Christ. And after considering this, we're going to see the glories of the cross. See, if, if Christ was really, truly all about the glory of the Father, then what he did on the cross has truly glorious realities for us to consider this morning. And so it's, it's my hope that as we do that, that we would join Christ in his purpose in his life, that our lives too would be marked by the pursuit of the glory of God, and that we would be a people who regularly celebrate the glories of the cross. Would you join me in prayer as we begin? Father, we thank you for this day, for us to be together as a church, to sing glorious truths, to hear the preaching of your word. Would you give us life this morning in Christ? Would you help us and would you be near to us? Father, some of us come here this morning weary and we need to be strengthened. Father, some of us here come apathetic and we need to be encouraged and challenged. Father, some of us come happy and we need to praise you and recognize you for the blessings that come from you. Be our help this morning, Father, we beg. Father, we pray for the other churches in the area. Pray for all of your churches this morning that they would be preaching the glory of Christ and that many would come to see his beauty and worship him and delight in him. And Father, what we know not this morning, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us for your son's sake. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So let's first consider the purpose of Christ. Follow along with me here in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We begin here with Jesus' words that his soul is troubled. Now, why, why is that? Well, uh, you might remember what he just said last week. You can look in verse 23 and 24. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It is the hour of his atoning death. 
The time has come. He is the grain of wheat that must fall into the earth and die in order that there would be much fruit. And he is troubled by this approaching moment. This Greek word that's used here, we've already considered it before, it has the meaning of being affected with great pain and great sorrow. It was described of Jesus when he saw Mary weeping over her dead brother Lazarus. And it's the same word that will be used to describe Jesus when he tells his disciples that Judas is going to betray him. So Jesus here is experiencing some very deep emotional distress and sorrow. Even as he's speaking about these glorious realities, now is the hour that the Son of Man is going to be glorified, and yet there is deep trouble. There is distress that he is experiencing. So Jesus' whole life was about his death. Jesus lived to die. And the name that he was given is Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. And why was he given that name? We're told in Matthew, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus knew that salvation would only come through his death. He was born to die so that those who die would live. And this has always been God's eternal purpose. The apostle Peter declared on the day of Pentecost, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and sign that God did through him in your midst. And you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In Revelation 13.8, the Apostle John says that from the foundation of the world, Jesus was the Lamb who would be slain. Psalm 22 tells us of the suffering of the Messiah to come on the cross. Daniel 9 tells us that an anointed one will be cut off. Isaiah 53 tells us of the suffering servant who would die a substitutionary death, being pierced for our transgressions. The death of Jesus isn't some accident. It's not some oversight on God's part. It isn't a mistake where Satan pulled a fast one on God. This has been God's eternal plan for his glory, and it is a central theme of the Bible. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers... Did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to do nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the central message of the apostles. This is the central message of the Christian faith. And we see it every time we baptize. We see it every time we participate in the Lord's Supper. The death of Christ is central to his church. And so his death was really the point of his life. And, and he, he must have considered it a thousand times in his own mind. And now the moment has come and his soul is troubled. And it may be that he is experiencing a, a natural recoiling from the idea of death and suffering. Jesus was truly man and no man wants to suffer and die. It is unnatural. But I think that his trouble comes mostly from anticipating divine wrath. It wasn't so much that he was going to be beaten bloody and die. It's that he was going to bear the sins that he never committed. He was going to be separated from the Father. 
He was going to face the punishment for the crimes he did not commit. How can the sinless God bear sin? That's troubling. That's a troubling prospect for Jesus. And so he acknowledges that he's troubled, and he says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Though Jesus is troubled, he has a certain confident resolve. He's saying that that although my, my troubles urge me to say, save me, I'm not going to do that. In fact, I'm going to say the opposite. Father, glorify your name and lead me to the cross. And even though Jesus is deeply distressed, the idea of of asking the Father for deliverance is inconceivable. Why? Because Jesus came for a purpose. He came for this purpose. And not just to die. It is to die, but it is chiefly in order that the Father would be glorified. Jesus is for the glory of the Father. His eyes are so fixed upon his glory that he will do nothing short of what accomplishes it. And Jesus here is not only stating his resolve, but he is also referring to Scripture. Just back in chapter 10, when Jesus faced a a bloodthirsty mob and quoted Scripture, I find it so wonderfully encouraging that here again, in this moment of deep distress, What is on Jesus' mind? It is the word of God. (laughs) I mean, hallelujah. we, We might think, we might think to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness with Satan as our example of how how important the scripture being in you is when it comes to fighting sin. And that is super important. And I do want us to know that that scene. But brethren, there are, there are so many other passages where we see Jesus doing this very same thing. And the point is that we really, truly need the word of God abiding in us. For if we do not, we will compromise. Because our souls will face trouble. And so we really, truly need this. We need to learn from our Lord in this. And what he's referencing is Psalm chapter 6, a psalm in which David cries out for deliverance. David asks the Lord to not let him die at the hands of his enemies. David expresses his concerns for the glory of God and says that if he dies, then he's not going to be able to glorify the Father. And he concludes by expressing confidence that his enemies will be ashamed and they will be the ones who are now greatly troubled. Jesus takes this psalm and he turns it a little bit. He says, I'm I'm not going to say what David said. Jesus is saying that he will die at the hands of his enemies. He is saying that his enemies will be ashamed and that they are going to be the ones who now experience the great trouble. And rather than, than pleading that he would not die, Jesus is embracing his death because it will bring about the glory of the Father. It is because of the death of Jesus that those who die will once again praise the Father bodily in the resurrection. And Jesus knows that his purpose in coming to the world was to die in order to glorify the Father. This is the heartbeat of his life, and his simple four-word prayer shows us that. Father, 
glorify your name. What a simple prayer. I wonder if that's a prayer that we pray often in our own lives. Father, glorify your name. Though Jesus is in such anguish, he was obedient. There is an encouragement here for us. Though we may be grieved, we can persevere. Though we may have deep internal conflict against our sin, we can't overcome. We can be resolved by God's grace to be faithful and obedient with the aim of glorifying God. Friends, when the glory of God is your chiefest ambition in your life, the troubles of this life melt away. It's not going to be perfect. You'll still stumble and fall, but I am telling you that if this is not the central purpose of your life, you will flounder. You will flounder. This life is hard. The life of a Christian is not easy. But know that your struggle against your sin, that your desire to glorify God, what it demonstrates about you, is that you are a child of God. That's not natural. The world doesn't long for those things. The world and those who are in it long for their own glory. So take heart in that. Know that you are loved by God. Glory doesn't mean the absence of sorrow and troubles in this life. Our Lord experienced this. You are going to experience this. Take comfort in knowing that Jesus knows your experience and look to his example. Well, how does the Father respond to Jesus' prayer? Uh, Verse 28, it says, Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So the Father hears Jesus' prayer, and his answer is, I have and I will. And in what way has he glorified his name already? Well, goodness, how much time do you have? I mean, we could go through literally the entire left half of where I am in this Bible, and we could spend, I don't know, an eternity uh, going over the myriad of ways that the Father has glorified his name already. But the most obvious and the most directly relevant is that he had just glorified his name in the resurrection of Lazarus. I remember what Jesus said back in chapter 11. He said that Lazarus' illness would not lead to death, but to what? The glory of God. And notice that connection. Death and resurrection leading to the glory of God. The Father is saying that like he was glorified through Lazarus, he will now glorify his name in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this this speaking here really is a remarkable event. Uh, There's only three times in the Gospels that we have the Father speaking from heaven. And all these are very important. They're critical in the life and mission of Jesus. We read about in the first time in Matthew chapter 3. This is... Jesus' baptism, where Jesus begins his public ministry that would lead to the cross. And what does the Father say to him? 
or to the crowd. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The father vindicates the son and he approves of his mission. The second time is in Matthew chapter 17. This is Jesus' transfiguration when, when he is cloaked in glorious light. And Moses and Elijah stand there and talk with him. And the father here says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is is exalted and clothed in glorious light, and he is shown to be the fulfillment of the old covenant and to be God himself. And what we have here in John 12 is the third and final time that we have the Father speaking from heaven. And in speaking, he vindicates the Son as the one who will die for the glory of the Father. This is Jesus' purpose. It is a divine purpose. It is a glorious purpose. It is an eternal purpose. And God is making that abundantly clear. And this happens, we're told, for the sake of the crowd. Let's continue reading verse 29. So the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. So the crowd hears the voice of the Father, but they do not understand. Some thought it was thunder. Others thought that it was an angel. And the two explanations are both wrong and both in different ways, and we have both of these things still even here in our own day. The first explanation is the naturalist or the materialist explanation. This was nothing supernatural. It was a weather event. This was merely thunder. The other explanation is is spiritual, and it is maybe closer, but it's not quite there. It stops short of the truth of the matter. It's not a mere angel who is speaking. It is the Father himself who is speaking. So it sounds good. It sounds spiritual. It sounds enlightened. But it's not right. And something that I find interesting is that in the Old Testament, the voice of God is often described as thunder. On Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, we're told that God answers Moses in thunder. In Psalm 18.13, David said, The Lord also thundered in the heavens, the Most High uttered his voice. Job 37, Elihu says that God thunders with his majestic voice. God thunders wondrously with his voice. And in Job 40, God challenges Job and says, have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like this? The irony here is that the crowd is is close to describing the truth. But they still miss it. They don't quite get it. It is thunder in a sense. It's the thunder of the voice of God. And they cannot discern it. The voice was not for their sake. The voice was for their sake and not for Jesus. Then why didn't they understand it? Seems like the natural question. If it was for them, why can't they understand it? We aren't given an explicit answer, but I think it has to do with what Jesus says in the following verse and then in verses later that we're not going to cover today. It is the judgment of the world. 
You see, even though they did not understand what was said, and again, in following verses, in verses 38 through 40, we see that they weren't supposed to understand. It was unmistakable that this sound did in fact come from heaven. That if they actually knew the God of their scriptures, they would have known that his voice thunders. They would have known that this came just as Jesus offered his prayer. Father, glorify your name. See, what this does is this condemns the crowd because they should have known. It is plainly obvious that they should have known. And yet, they do not believe. And when Jesus is lifted up, the world will be judged for its unbelief and no one will be without excuse. So Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. If you look at verse 43, if you just want to turn your eyes there in your own Bibles, you'll see that John tells us that people don't believe because they love the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. This is a, a perversion of the very purpose of Christ. He came for the glory of God. Man, in our sin, we live for the glory of men. And Jesus has come to set the record straight. He has come to die. He has come to atone. He has come to bring mercy and forgiveness. And he has come to expose the darkness and evil of this world. He has come to, to cast out Satan. And he wants us to see that the things that we think are glorious are not. They're cheap imitations. Jesus wants us to see that glory belongs to God. This is Jesus' great purpose. It is the glory of God. And, and this glory is, is most magnificently seen in his atoning death on the cross. And so let's, let's turn to consider that now, uh, starting in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. And now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus' purpose is the glory of the Father. And he is to die on the cross so that God would be glorified. And Jesus tells the crowd how the event of the cross is a glorious event. His death is going to glorify the Father, but how? How does the death of Christ on the cross glorify God? Well, there's, again, many ways to answer that. We see God's love, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness, his, his power, his wisdom displayed. We see the truth of his word vindicated. We see the fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, we see the truth of God magnified. In the cross, God displays who he is in, in the most full and glorious way. Here in these verses, we see three particular ways, three glories of the cross. And, and I do want to, us to notice the, the triumph here. Jesus is speaking with such triumph and confidence. And so it's, it's as though the trouble that he expressed has, has now melted away 
in the Father's affirmation of his prayer that he is going to glorify his name. And so the glories of the cross. The first is that the world is judged. The world is judged. The second is that the ruler of this world is cast out. And the third is that Christ draws all people to himself. So first, the world is judged. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. God glorifies himself through judging the world. So the crucifixion of Christ judges the world because it condemns the world's sin. Think of all the evils of the world. Seriously, think about it. If murder, slander, prostitution, sex slavery, genocide, chattel slavery, racism, drug addiction, theft, deception, child sacrifice, the list could go on. We have no shortage of creative ways to live in the darkness and to produce evil deeds. And these are the things that Christ died for. And these are the things that Christ died to conquer and to judge. These are the things that Christ's death brings forgiveness for. The darkness of this world is made evident because the light of the world has come and died under the tyranny of the darkness. And the world condemns itself through its cheat treatment of Christ. It's the same today. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So the problem is that the world does not believe in Christ. And this is a grave sin. And the cross creates a clear and massive divide between belief and unbelief, between those who are of the darkness and those who are sons of light. And here is the ironic twist on the judgment of the world. So that the Jewish people thought that they had judged Christ. They, they thought that their verdict was final and true. But in reality, they are the ones who have been judged along with the Romans and the mockers and with the whole world. And that the, and the world there is just a reminder in John's gospel has to do with the darkness, the whole system of sin and evil throughout the cosmos and those who would embrace it. So what was thought to be the judgment of Christ was actually the judgment of the world. And guess what? Jesus has overcome the world. Christ is ruling and reigning over the world right now. But the judgment has not yet been fully executed. The world has been sentenced and the world has received temporal judgment, but it awaits the final completion of its judgment. And all those who belong to the world stand condemned, waiting for judgment. In Acts 17, Paul preached to the people of Athens and he said, The time, times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all 
by raising him from the dead. Now is the judgment of the world and those who are in it. The verdict is in, and it awaits the final judgment. And so, things like injustice. Injustice has been exposed as evil. And one day it's going to be eliminated. Sex slavery has been exposed as evil. And one day it will be eliminated. Shedding innocent blood has been exposed as evil. And one day it will be done away with. Seeking the glory of man and self-exaltation has been exposed. And one day it will be done away with. The world can no longer operate successfully in the darkness because the light of Christ has come and exposed it. Now is the judgment of this world. The second glory of the cross is that the ruler of this world is cast out. Jesus says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Well, who is the ruler of this world? And what does it mean that he is the ruler of this world? Well, it's Satan. Satan, under God's wise providence, has been given power and influence in this sinful world. So there's a very real sense in which he is a ruler of this world. In John 13, we are told that when uh, Satan enters, uh, we're told of when uh, Satan enters Judas for his betrayal of Jesus. And one chapter later, Jesus says to his disciples, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He's speaking of the fact that Judas, being filled with Satan, was going to come for his betrayal. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that Satan is the god of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Ephesians 2 tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air who leads the world. 1 John 5 tells us that Satan is the evil one under whose power the world lies. In all this, we can see that Satan has real power in the world. He is a ruler, but he is also a usurper. He is a cheap and evil imitation of the true ruler, who is Christ. What does it mean that Satan is cast out? Does this mean he no longer has activity in this world? Well, no, it isn't that he is cast out of the world. Rather, he is cast out from his position of authority. He's a a ruler who has been disposed of his rule in that sense. He has been dethroned. He is a usurper who is being unseated. See, Satan has been defeated decisively. His final sentence is in the future, but his judgment is sure and partially enacted even now. See, he can no longer make his accusations against those who are in Christ. All our sins are forgiven in Christ. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that through Jesus' death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The power of Satan is no more. He no longer has power over death because we have eternal life in Christ. So there is no fear of death. 
Christ has defeated death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He has conquered Satan, and we share in his victory. Satan has no say in our future. The verdict is in. He is judged. He has been exposed. His power has been eliminated. The cross is the defeat of Satan. Jesus has the victory. This is why he says later in John 19, right before he dies, it is finished. God is glorified in his death because it casts out the ruler of this world. And like with the judgment of the world, this is another ironic twist. It looked as though Satan had won in the death of Christ. But the reality is that he has been dealt a death blow. There is no recovery for him. His days are numbered. He has been sentenced to death and he awaits his final judgment. Again, later in John 14, Jesus will say to his disciples, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Man, do I love that. He has no claim on me. Brethren, that's true for us when we're in Christ. We have no fear of him. He's the ruler has been cast out. Satan's a loser. He is. He's powerful in this world, yes, but he's a loser. He has nothing. He has lost. He has no power over Christ. And he's lost his power over death. But he still works. The world still lies in the power of the evil one. He's still prowling around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And so we must still resist him. We must still be vigilant. But he has no power. He can no longer deceive us. In Matthew 12... Jesus teaches about the binding of the strong man. And I want us to see how these concepts are connected. In Matthew 12, starting in verse 25, Jesus says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if by the Spirit of God, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, there is a, a lot to say here and a lot of connections to make, and I'm not, for the sake of time, going to be able to really get into all that, but I would love to have conversations uh, with all of you about this an, another time. But what we see here is a strong man being bound and his house being plundered. And you see the connection there with the fact that we have demons and Satan being cast out. See, Satan had power and authority in this world, but he has been cast out. I would suggest that this idea of Satan being cast out is connected with this idea of 
Satan being bound and his house now being plundered. Jesus now plunders what was his and what belonged to Satan. All people. All people belong to Satan. They were all under his power and his influence. See that in John 12.32. We see all people now coming to Christ because they are no longer under the power of Satan. That's, again, that's very super condensed, but it's important for us to, to see these biblical connections and how it fits to the broader picture of the Bible. And, and here's, here's a hot take, maybe. Uh, I think that this is all super connected for how we get to uh, the book of Revelation and chapter 20. I think that these earlier things inform how we... Friends, if you're trying to build your eschatology by reading the book of Revelation, you're doing it wrong. You need to read the Old Testament. You need to read what Jesus says and does. Those are the things that inform how you understand Revelation. And so I think in Revelation 20, when we have this picture of Jesus binding Satan and throwing him in the pit, that this is connected to this idea. And what this means is that he no longer deceives the nations, we're told in Revelation 20. Instead of deceiving all the nations, what's happening here in John 12? We have all people coming to Christ. The nations are no longer deceived. The gospel is now going forward. All men are drawn to Christ. This is new. This is not how it was under the old covenant. But in the new covenant, it is truer, it is better. And this is one of those ways that it's better. So some of you may strongly disagree with my eschatology, but again, happy to talk with you uh, another time about that. But the point is that Jesus has defeated Satan. His victory and his death puts him to open shame, and it renders him powerless. Uh, Colossians 2, we read that uh, earlier in verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Satan has lost his power by the cross. And he is put to open shame because he has been triumphed over. Every time the gospel is preached, Satan is put to shame and Christ is exalted. Every time a sinner hears and believes the gospel, Satan is put to shame and Christ is exalted. Through the cross, the gospel is advancing in a way that it never has before. And he is drawing all people to himself. And that's the third glory of the cross. Jesus says in verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And this language of being lifted up is the same as back in chapter 3, where, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And we notice then that just as those who are bitten by the poisonous serpents were saved by looking upon the bronze serpent that was lifted up, so we who are poisoned with the deadly toxin of sin are saved when we look upon the Lord who is lifted up on the cross. 
Jesus' death has saved us. His death makes it possible to be justified before God and to be reconciled to him. His death pays the penalty for our sins against God. His death brings forgiveness. His death satisfies God's wrath against us. His death makes it possible to preach salvation freely and truly. Because Jesus has told us that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. His death guarantees that his sheep who are scattered abroad will hear his voice and be gathered into his one fold, the children of God. This is all because Jesus was lifted up. And because of this, he draws all people to himself. Now, now we might read those words and, and pause and think, does that mean that everybody is getting saved? All people seems to mean every single person without exception. What's going on here? Uh, well, no, not everyone is going to be saved. A uh, few, few reasons for that. First, in the Greek text, it simply says all. It doesn't say all people, but translators supply people to try and give understanding of the meaning. So uh, what Jesus says literally is, I will draw all to myself. The question is all who? All who? Uh, earlier in John 6, Jesus said that all that the Father gives me will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So there is a, a definite group of people, what other New Testament authors call the elect, who are given to Christ. And if we consider what Jesus said in John 8, we know that not everyone will be saved. In, in 8.21, he said, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Uh, so what Jesus is saying here in verse 32 cannot mean all people without exception. He's already told us that that's not what is going to happen. So why say it this way? Well, it is consistent with what Jesus has already said in John's gospel. But more than that, look back at, at verse 20 in chapter 12. Who is it that has come to see Jesus? It's the Greeks. We're told that Greeks have come. There are Gentiles now coming to see Jesus. And what this means is that salvation is for more than just the Jews. It is for all people. It's for Jews. It's for Greeks. It's for Gentiles. It's for people of every tribe and nation and tongue. Jesus will draw them all to himself. The nations come to Christ. And so that's what he means when he's saying this. All peoples, all kinds of people are going to be coming. All his elect are going to be coming to him. The nations come to Christ. And, and why is that? Again, it's because the world is judged. It is because the ruler of this world has been cast out. He draws men who were detained, men who were under the power of Satan, men who were wandering in the darkness of this world. But the tyrant has been cast out. The world has been judged. And these men have been set free. The strong man has been bound. His goods are being plundered. And all people may now find forgiveness, hope, and eternal life in Christ. 
This is the drawing of all people to Christ. This is the glory of the cross. And this is why he came. All of this is the fruit of the grain of wheat falling in the ground to die. The cross of Christ is the moment when not not only the Son, but also the Father will be glorified. They share in this glory of the cross. The sins of the world are exposed and judged. Satan is condemned and conquered. Salvation comes and Christ will draw all people to himself. And in all of this, God is glorified. This is why Christ came. But what does all this mean for you? What does it mean for us as a church? Well, non-Christian friend, if you are here and you are not a believer in Christ, what this means is that you may come to Christ today and be set free from the ruler of this world. You may be set free from the darkness of this world. Hear the voice of God this morning. Do not be like the crowd who did not hear and understand the voice of God speaking. And I want you to leave here thinking that this has just been some helpful talk, some interesting conversation, thinking that the recorded words of Jesus that we read are just inspirational. I want you to hear the words of God this morning. You've got two options. There's Jesus, and there's the ruler of this world. And Jesus says that he has defeated him. There is the glory of men which is fleeting, uncertain, fragile, leaves you disappointed. And there's the glory of God, which is eternal, satisfying, and sure. There is the darkness of the world with all its troubles and evils. And there is the kingdom of God with all its glories and unending joys. There is condemnation for your sin in eternal punishment. And there is forgiveness in Christ for what he has done on the cross. Jesus is speaking this morning. He is drawing all people to himself. Will you listen? Will you hear? Citizens Church, uh, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for you as a member of this church? Just as Christ was dead set on the glory of God, that was a pun, pun, no pun intended, I just realized that I wrote a pun there. Just as Christ was dead set on the glory of God, so we should be set on the glory of God. Let us share the very same purpose of our Lord. Let us glorify God with our lives, and not just with our beliefs. Not not just with having right doctrine and knowing our systematic theologies, but with our actions, with everything that we do. Friends, you can know all the content about the Bible and the world that you want to, but if it does not cause you to love Christ, if it does not magnify the glory of God in your life, it is for nothing. And what it's going to do is make you proud. It's going to make you yearn for the glory of men. So if that's your heart, 
confess that to the Lord? Ask him for his help? We want to glorify God with our lives. And so I want to suggest three quick ways that we can do this. The first is walk in obedience to God even when it's difficult. If the world has been judged, let's not walk in darkness. If Satan has been cast out, let's not submit ourselves to his schemes. Just as Jesus in his time of trouble did not give way but chose obedience to Christ, to God rather, let us choose obedience. Even when it's hard. And it will be hard. You know this. You have experienced this. Let us avoid sin. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hate your sin. Flee from it. Parents, love your children. Children, obey your parents. The world hates the family. Push back against the darkness. The world is also self-consumed and and full of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Let us instead outdo one another in showing honor. Let's pray for one another. Let's meet each other's needs. Let's, Let's consider the interests of others. Galatians 6 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do not walk in the darkness, but glorify God by walking in obedience. Second, have no fear of death. Have no fear of death. If Satan has been cast out, And if Jesus has removed his power over death, then we have no fear of death. Remember what Jesus has said. He said, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus has conquered death and has given us eternal life. And death for us is not the end. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. It is gain. Death is tragic. Death is hard. But for us, death is not the end. Death is gain. We enter into his presence where we await the final resurrection. This is why for 2,000 years, Christians have gone all over the world to preach the gospel, even among hostile peoples who want to kill them and do kill them. This is why Christians have been willing to to care for the sick and dying throughout major plagues in history. This is why we can face our own infirmities with confidence and joy. Our God is the God of life. Many of us know about Meredith's sister who on Thursday underwent surgery for serious heart problems. And the surgery was not expected to go well. Chance of success was low. And the chance of success without any complications or lasting effects were even lower. But do you know, in the face of death, because that was a pretty confident reality, 
in the face of death, what she asked people to be praying for her and for her family. She said, pray that none of us grow weary in doing good. It's remarkable. That's no fear of death. Glorify God by having no fear of death. Third, celebrate the glory of the gospel. If Christ has judged the world, if he has cast Satan out, if he has drawn you to himself, and if he is drawing all people to himself, live your life in celebration of the glory of the gospel. Preach it to yourself every day. Preach it to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to anyone who will listen. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with all your might, with gratefulness in your heart to God. Think about it in your joys. Think about it in your sorrows. Seek to treasure God above all things in this life and let the glories of God allow you to enjoy to the fullest the life that he has given you in Christ. What is the chief end of man? That was good. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let that not just be a statement that you have memorized. Let that honestly be the heartbeat of your life. I will glorify God with my life and I will enjoy him forever. Friends, there is nothing better that you can do with your life. There is no greater purpose that you can experience than to live for the glory of God. Strive to make it your ambition. Let that be your purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glory of the cross. We thank you for the purpose of Christ who has come to die in order that we might live. Christ who has come in order to glorify your name above all names. Father, we thank you that though we are weak, that we are sinners, that you have loved us with an eternal love, that you have forgiven us in Christ. Father, would you help us to be a people who live for your glory, who long to see your glory proclaimed among all peoples. Give us the, the courage and the strength to proclaim the glory of Christ and the glory of his gospel. Give us the endurance to pray faithfully and powerfully and expectantly. Father, help us. We need your help. We want to be a people who are constantly beholding your glory. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.